2 Corinthians. The sermon will be from 2 Kings, but I want to read from 2 Corinthians for our scripture reading, chapter 6. Beginning in verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I'll pray. Again, Jesus, we thank you so much for um, the gift of life that we celebrate this Sunday and that it is truly a sacred gift. And we, we thank you, Lord, um, for the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Again, a sacred gift. And I pray that as we look at your word, God, that we would just have our hearts renewed um, to the true measure of this precious gift that you've given us and that we would cherish, Lord, this life that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And now if you'll turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 8. I'm starting to skip a little bit here now as we go through 2 Kings. And um, I just want to highlight um, some of the more um, significant passages perhaps as we um, march toward the end of this series. In chapter 8 of 2 Kings verse 16, we're introduced to another king. And this is a very interesting statement that's made about him. Now in the fifth year of Joram the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. This is the interesting thing. And he, the son of Jehoshaphat, a king of Judah, walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He's not walking in the ways of his dad. Not walking in the ways of David, but he's walking in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. Why? For the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. However, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he had promised him, this is the Davidic covenant, to give him a lamp all through his sons, always. And now the next king, verse 25, the same chapter. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. So now Jehoshaphat's 
um, son has died, and now his grandson is on the throne. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, or in other words, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab, not in the ways of the house of David. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab had done, because he was a son-in-law of the house of Ahab. As I said more literally, he's a grandson of Ahab. How did this happen? Well, we're told. Jehoshaphat allowed his son to marry into the family of Ahab and Jezebel, the most wicked king and queen that Israel had ever had. No comparison. It's this couple that completely outlaw the worship of God in Israel. God's nation on earth. The only nation on earth that could claim to be God's nation. And the king of Israel has said, we will no longer worship God. There's no good parallel. History has never had another parallel like this. Now we're seeing the downfall of the West. It used to be the West was called the Christian West. And you certainly can't say that anymore. But even what we see in the West with the departure from Christ and from Christianity is nothing that compares with this. These are the people that are God's covenant nation, the only covenant nation that saw all the miracles getting out of Egypt and providing for them for 40 years in the wilderness, all that God has done to sustain and provide for these people, and they have completely turned away from God. Now Jehoshaphat was a good king, Judah. He was, in many respects, the polar opposite of Ahab. And so you think, what was he thinking that he allowed his son to marry into that family? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was thinking. But I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because he was a good man. And maybe his motivation was to try to witness to the house of Ahab, to be a light in a dark place. What better way than to allow your son to marry into that family? And so we might argue, he says, well, the scripture says not to, be, um, to marry a foreigner. The Bible says that. But this house is not a foreign house. They are Jews. They are just of different tribes. But they are just as Jewish as Jehoshaphat. And so maybe he thought, well, that restriction doesn't apply to me and my family. But that restriction about not marrying foreigners had nothing to do with where they were from. It had to do with their lack of faith. And it was interfaith marriages that God was against when he said, don't marry the foreigner. I like to joke and say that's a good thing since my three sons all married foreigners, Canadians. They needed to be rescued. Um, but God is not against, he is not against international marriages, but he is against interfaith marriages. And this is the classic example in Scripture of an interfaith marriage gone bad. I would challenge you to find one that went good. See, some things God speaks to us by, by proclamation in His Word. You shall not. 
Other things, God speaks to us by example. And he says, look how it turns out. That should tell you something. Proverbs says that if you rebuke the scoffer, the naive or the simple will take instruction. And so I, like, I was one of those kids in school that you didn't have to beat me. Just beat the kids sitting next to me. <laughs> and you, and we didn't, they didn't beat the kids back then. But they did, they, they did spank them and they did scream at them. I had more than one teacher that would just almost have heart attacks screaming at, at, at children. Um, it, was a, it was a great time to grow up. <laughs> Today they just sit in the corner for one minute per age. You know, So if you're six years old, you sit for six minutes. If you're seven, you sit for seven minutes. And yeah, that didn't work too well. But these teachers, they would just give it to you. And here, the, what, what God is trying to say to us here is that you should not need to be screamed at. He should not have to always have to give a clear proclamation about whether something is good or bad. Sometimes he says, just look around you. How is this going for people? Is this really working? And when it comes to mixed faith marriages, there are these examples in Scripture, and this is the primary one where you can just see it doesn't turn out well. But this is an area that God has spoken to. Had He not spoken, simply the examples in Scripture would be enough to tell us this is not God's will. But He has spoken. He spoke in the Old Testament, as I said, you cannot marry foreign women. But he speaks in the New Testament, and that's the passage that I read this morning for the scripture reading. Do not be unequally yoked. Now, that's actually, I think, broader than what we make it, because we make it, I've often made it, just simply about believer and unbeliever. It certainly includes that. But you can be unequally yoked to a person who claims to know faith, to, ha- to know Christ, to be a believer. You can be two Christians and, have no, you, and you actually do not have your faith in Christ in common because one is loving the world and the other loves Jesus. And you are going in two different directions. But you love each other, but you are not equally yoked. And one is always pulling against the other. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? God would have us to enter marriage with the common foundation of Jesus Christ, a common faith in Him. Because if we don't have Him in common, as that passage in 2 Corinthians 6 says, we have nothing in common. Also in 1 Corinthians 7, the Lord speaks to this, and He says that when a woman's husband dies, she is free to marry whomever she wishes. But then He puts this condition, but only in the Lord meaning that you can only marry a Christian. So this has not changed. It has always been the way that God has wanted it. He doesn't explain it, but we know that it is good because God's will is good. Oswald Chambers says that a lot of times we don't have spiritual understanding because he says obedience precedes understanding when it comes to spiritual things. And this is an area where if we obey God by faith, we will see the wisdom and goodness of God's ways. And one of the things that God is after here in not having mixed faith relationships is a lot of things. One is that because it portrays 
a lie, a mixed faith relationship, marriage. It portrays that light and darkness can be one. That's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 6. What fellowship have light and darkness? None. And so on its face, a mixed faith marriage is saying something that is a lie. It is not true. Believer and unbeliever can no more be one than light and darkness can be one. It's impossible. The thing that we truly have in common is Christ. And if you have Christ, you are alive. And the unbeliever is dead spiritually. This is what God's Word says. And you cannot be one with a person who is dead spiritually. I tried to gently, lovingly encourage a young woman that was very close to me and Patsy to not marry an unbeliever. I had her parents' permission to write to her. She had sent us a wedding invitation, um, and I'm thankful that she wanted us to be involved on her special day. And I wrote her and I said, I have enough confidence in you to know that you would not marry this man if he were not a good man. I know that you would not go after just some degenerate, reprobate guy. I have every confidence that he is a good man. But by your own admission, he is not saved. He does not know Jesus as his life. And I tried to exhort her. There is a greater loneliness in life than going through life single. Even greater than that kind of loneliness is to share a bed with a man that you can't pray with. Because life gets really hard. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I told this young woman, I know your first instinct is to run to Jesus. And when life gets hard, you cry out to Jesus. And yet the man that you love will not be crying out to Jesus. And that is loneliness. Made her angry, very angry. She married him anyway. But then a while later, she wrote to us and asked for our our forgiveness. And she confessed that she was living in rebellion against God when she willfully, knowingly married this unbelieving good man. He has yet to come to faith in Christ. We've had, those of you that have been part of Bernie Bible Church, you know that you can't have a church, a Christian congregation, and not have folks in the congregation who are in a mixed faith relationship. Sometimes that comes about because you were both unsaved when you got married. And one of you comes to Christ and the other one doesn't. The Bible says in that kind of circumstance, stay married. 1 Corinthians 7, do not leave, stay married. For the sake of your believing, unbelieving spouse and your children, stay married. It's an opportunity for them to hear about Jesus. Others um, walked into a marriage knowing you were marrying an unbeliever hoping that that person would come to faith in Christ. That was wrong. That was sin. But now that that decision has been made, God's will again is the same for you. Stay married. Stay in the marriage. Pray for your unbelieving spouse. And trust that God will bring them to faith in Him. You be faithful to what you have vowed. And we pray with you for that. We are still praying for a gentleman who's never been part of this church, but his wife 
um, was, and he has yet to come to faith in Christ. There's hardly a day that goes by that I don't pray for that man's salvation. I love him, and I want to see him come to Jesus. And he, they were married over 60 years. Never yet has placed his faith in Christ. Jehoshaphat allowed this to happen. Now let me tell you what happened when he allowed this to happen. So if we'll put the one of the few PowerPoints you will ever see, because normally <laughs> this is my PowerPoint, okay? Powerful point. <laughs> now what I've put up here is what happens. And much of this is a consequence of this ill um, this, this terrible decision to let this young man marry this young woman. And so with that up on the, on the, on the screen, look with me now at your text. And we're just going to highlight some of these things. Chapter 9. Jehu is anointed king. Okay? And he's got a job. Fulfill the prophecy that has been pronounced against Ahab's house. And he knows this. So in chapter 9, in verse 8, it says, The whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person. That's going to be very important. Both bond and free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. That is the prophecy against Ahab that was pronounced to Jehu when he was anointed king. So as soon as he's anointed, he walks back into the room where his commanders were. He was the commander of the army, and he has other commanders with him. And they see his head dripping with oil, and they go, what just happened? And he goes, you know what happened. I'm dripping with oil. I just got anointed king. And so then they, they all acknowledge him as king. And so he gets in his chariot, and he goes from where he was up to Samaria, which is the capital city of Israel, to kill um, Joram. Okay, now, on that side over there, I meant to bring a little pointer thing, you know, but here's my pointer thing. Um, Athaliah is the daughter married to Jehoram. Ahaziah fell through the lattice and died, 2 Kings chapter 1. His brother, Joram, is now on the throne. Now, how this gets really complicated, and this is why you have to read carefully when you go through the text, Joram and Jehoram are often spelled the same. The Bible switches back and forth in the spelling. So it makes it a little confusing. Plus, you've got Ahaziah and Ahaziah. So that doesn't help either. And then some of these names, when you go to 2 Chronicles, are different. They're, they're just totally different than what they are in 2 Kings. But we know, as we read the context, we're talking about the same person. So Jehu's just been anointed king. So he gets in his chariot, goes up to Samaria, and he finds Joram, who is recovering from battle injuries. And so he's in his chariot, and he's flying as fast as he can to Samaria, and Joram has watchmen on the city wall say, hey, there's some guy that's really driving fast in a chariot coming up here. So he sends out one messenger, comes back, doesn't come back. Sends out another messenger, doesn't come back. And so finally the watchman, he can see it close enough, he goes, there's only one guy this can be because I only know one man that drives a chariot like that, and that's 
and that's Jehu. So I've had people say that's how I drive my chariot, like Jehu does. And he said, that can only be Jehu. So Joram, not suspecting um, anything bad's going to happen, he gets in his chariot with Ahaziah. Now Ahaziah is his nephew, his sister's son. Okay? And Ahaziah, the king of Judah, happened to be up in Israel, bad time to go visit uncle, who's trying, who wants to go and check out how he's recovering from his battle wounds. And so they both get in their chariots and they go out there. This is all in, in chapter 9. And so as they get close, Joram says to Jehu, is it peace? And Jehu goes, what peace? As long as your mother Jezebel is around, and he calls her a witch and a harlot. So if somebody's calling your mom a witch and a harlot, it's probably not a good guy. At least he's not real happy with you. And so he shoots Joram and kills him. And Ahaziah tries to take off, and he shoots him and kills him. So just in the span of a few minutes after becoming king, he has assassinated two kings. Why did he assassinate Ahaziah? Because he understands, rightly or wrongly, he understands the prophecy against Ahab's house is against every male descendant of Ahab. Now, most folks would say he misunderstood the prophecy. Well, that's how he got it. And he said, all the, all the male descendants, that guy is a male descendant. He is a grandson of Ahab. He dies. And so he didn't hesitate to shoot him. But we got to back up, okay? Soon as Jehoram, who's married to Athaliah, becomes king, first time in Israel's history that this happened, at least in the line of David, under Athaliah's influence, he murders all of his brothers. No other king of David did this. Now, we remember when we first started with, with kings, Adonijah was prepared to murder Solomon and any other brother that sided with Solomon. But it didn't happen. And so you've, you've had peaceful transitions um, of power until we get to Jehoram, Jehoshaphat's son. Under this woman's influence, murders all of his brothers. Unbelievable. And so then it just gets worse. So Jehu now has killed Joram, and he's killed Ahaziah. He's not done yet. Ah, but i got to tell you, the brothers of Ahaziah, Ahaziah, all of his brothers are dead. Why? Because, number three, and this is a wrong reference, it should be, I'm, I got it wrong, 2 Chronicles, not 2 Kings. 2 Chronicles 21.17, or number three, all the Arabs wiped out all the brothers of Ahaziah. So, and he was, the, he was the youngest child left. And that's why he's put on the throne, because all the others are killed. And so you see the, this line is, is being depleted. And so then Jehu's not done with killing Joram and Ahaziah. He also kills the 70 sons of, of Ahab. Ahab has lots of wives, not just Jezebel. No way Jezebel had 70 sons. And, and so they're all in one city being, um, they're under the guardianship of the city leaders. And Jehu goes to the city and says, um, pick one of those 70 sons to fight for you and defend you. Well, the men of the city are going, what chance is that going to be? This guy's just killed two kings. None of these 70 boys are going to be our defender. And they said, we're not going to do that. What do you want us to do? And he says, kill them all. And so they happily complied. And they 
killed all 70 sons remaining of Ahab. Jehu's still not done. And so then he goes back to, um, to actually, before he killed those, I got the, the order mixed up. I need to look at my own chart. I'm actually turn around. I got mine too. He kills Jezebel. Kills these two sons, two kings, goes into, into Jezreel, and he, here he kills Jezebel. And we talked about this when we looked at Elijah. And we saw how this was Elijah's job. God raised up Elijah to get rid of the worship of Baal and even to get rid of Jezebel. But Elijah said no to that. And so now God has raised up other people to fulfill what the purpose of Elijah was. And Jehu's purpose now is to finish the job of eradicating the worship of Baal and getting rid of its source, which is Jezebel. So he comes riding in on his chariot after he's killed these two kings, and she no, has heard what's happened, and so she's dolled herself up. That's what the text says. Didn't use doll, but it says she made up her face and put, did her hair up, and she stood at the window, one of the upper windows in the palace, and she mocks him and says, Is this you, you Zimri, your master's murderer? And instead of responding to her, he just looks up at her, and she's got soldiers around her, and he goes, Who's on my side? Who? And the Bible says two or three men looked at him. That's all he needed. And he said, chunk her out the window. And so they just grabbed her, threw her out the window. By the time she hits the ground, she's dead. And just to make sure she's dead, he drove his chariot over her a bunch of times. <laughs> he went in and ate his lunch. And while he's eating his lunch, he starts to feel a little bad because this widow is just laying in the streets and needs to be buried, this, this queen. So he goes, she is a king's daughter. You guys go bury her. And they come back and they say, uh, Jehu, it's going to be a real small coffin. Uh, the dogs, while you've been eating your lunch, they've been eating their lunch. And the only thing that's left is her skull and her hands and her feet. Real small box. And that fulfilled the prophecy that the dogs would eat Jezebel. And so Jehu is seeing that God is in all this. He knew it from the very beginning. He was anointed and God was telling him through the prophet what to do. And now he comes back to that. So if you look at chapter 10, um, and chapter 10 is where he kills the 70 sons of Ahab. But verse 10 of chapter 10, it says, Now then, I'm sorry, know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elijah. Now this man is not saved. He is not um, what in the New Testament terminology, a Christian. He is not a righteous man using the Old Testament terminology. We're not going to see Jehu in heaven as far as we know. And yet, as an unbeliever, he can acknowledge what God is doing. He acknowledges God's word. He has, a, he has respect for the authority of God's word. And this should, should help us understand what total depravity is and is not. Because, again, there are so many folks out there today that say that total depravity means that you can have, have no knowledge of God, that you can have no um, fear of God. And I just go, how do you get that from reading our Bibles? There are so many unbelievers in the Bible that have a fear of God. They are God-fearing unbelievers. And Jehu was one of those men. And so now he's, he's, so he's killed Jezebel, he's killed the two kings, and now he, he's done, right? Nope. 
And so it says in verse 12, He arose and he departed and he went to Samaria. And on the way, while he was at beth Echid of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Well, who are those relatives? I mean, Jehoshaphat's dead. Jehoram's dead. Oh, by the way, how did Jehoram die? God just struck him with a disease in his bowels. He goes, he's a rotten man. Might as well just let him rot from the inside out. And so Jehoram died of a disease in his bowels after he had killed all of his brothers. So the, so the Arabs took all of Ahaziah's brothers. So who are these relatives of Ahaziah? His brothers are all dead. His uncles are all dead. His dad's dead. Who does he have left as a relative? Well, what we suppose here, and it's just a supposition, but it's all we have left, is that it is the sons, so this is number eight on the chart, it is the sons of his brothers who have already um, been killed by the Arabs. And so there are 42 of them. And just like their uncle, Ahaziah, had gone up to Israel to check on, on Ahaziah's uncle, they've gone up to check on their great uncle. Bad day to go visiting relatives. And so it says, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and he said, who are you? And they answered, now they know nothing about what's just happened. Two kings have died, Jezebel's died, 70 sons of Ahab have died, they don't know any of it. And they answered, we are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we've come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. Oh my word, worst thing you could have said. And Jehu says, take them alive. So they took them alive and they killed them at the pit of Beth Echid, 42 men, and they left none of them. Yeah, it is something to cry about. I agree. And, and so now he's, so now eight is gone. So one is gone, two is gone, four, five, six, seven, eight, they're all gone. And so you just go, and this, much of this is because of this unholy alliance between the house of David and the house of Ahab. He's still not done. And so Jehu says, we're going to call together a grand national Baal worship. Everybody that worships Baal come together. And he got them all together, put them in the same building, made sure every one of them was a Baal worshiper, and then sent his soldiers in and killed them all. And that brings us to verse 28 of chapter 10. It says, Jehu, thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Should have said, thus Elijah. But Elijah reneged on what God wanted him to do. So now Baal, I mean, Jehu has finished the eradication of Baal. Now, this is Athaliah's time. So she thinks. Chapter 11. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Okay. Jehoram's dead. Joram's dead, Ahaziah's dead, the 70 sons are dead, Jezebel's dead, the brothers of Ahaziah are dead, the sons of Ahaziah's brothers are dead. Who's left? What royal offspring? Ahaziah's children. Ahaziah is Athaliah's son. He's dead. So Athaliah's children are Ahaziah's grandchildren. I'm sorry, Athaliah... Ahaziah's children are Athaliah's grandchildren. Everybody got it? So the royal offspring she has just destroyed are her own grandchildren. She wiped them all out, except she missed one one-year-old baby. 
His name was Joash. His aunt, Jehoshaphat, saw what was going on, and she scooped him up. She was married to the priest, and he had control over the temple, which had its own guard. And she scooped up that one-year-old boy and rushed him into the temple, and she and her husband hid him for six years. And during that six years, her husband was slowly and methodically making sure that every man of the temple guard was loyal to the house of David, and that he was a faithful believer. And once he was sure that all of them were loyal, he said, it's time to bring out this boy, seven years old. Now, years ago, I preached on this passage, and I brought a couple seven-year-olds up here on the platform with me. And I asked Ford if I could bring him up, my seven-year-old grandson, no way. Not going to have it. But we all know, and I just like to demonstrate it, but to have a a seven-year-old child stand up here. Ford, are you there? Is he hiding? Ford, you want to come up here? No, I said, no way. See, I told you. But when a seven-year-old opens up his mouth, he is missing teeth. Ford's missing seven teeth, I think it is, right? And so this just big toothless grin. Well, if that's the case, then why? So seven years old... They make him king. They put the crown on his head, would have been too big. They give the testimony to him, which was the Old Testament that they had at the time. The king was always supposed to have a copy of it with him. Would have been almost too big for him to carry. So this seven-year-old boy has got this massive scroll under his arm, crown too big for his head, and they bring him out. In chapter 11, it says in verse verse 11, the guard stood each with his weapons in his hand, And from the right side of the house to the left side of the house, speaking of the temple, by the altar and by the house around the king. So they they surrounded him. Everywhere you look, soldiers. And then he brought out the king's son, and he put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed, anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! Now, why? Why would these warriors be excited, clapping their hands? Long live the king! And the little seven-year-old grins, and he doesn't even have all of his teeth. And they're going, we are so glad we've got a seven-year-old ruling over us. Oh, my word. Would you be excited? Our next president is a seven-year-old. You think, well, how could that be worse? I don't know, but... A seven-year-old ruling, and you're excited about it. Well, there's something going on here. See, all of this, if you look at everybody that's been wiped out in the house of David, what this seven-year-old boy, Joash, represents is the continuation of the Davidic line. And that's why they're excited. Because if David's line had been snuffed out, these people knew Not only does that mean that God cannot be trusted because his covenant has come to an end, but more importantly even than that, if you can get more important than that, there is no Savior coming because the Messiah would be from the line of David. And and so if this line of David is snuffed out, there's no Jesus. There is no salvation. We all go to hell. Now, if this boy was in fact the last remaining hope. And this boy is all but bulletproof. 
There is no way on this earth that boy is going to die before he has his own son to take the throne. Because God has promised that David would never lack a son to sit on the throne. So this is amazing time. The reason these people are rejoicing is because in their minds, this boy is the last thread to the Davidic line being cut off. Now, in fact, they were mistaken. But if all we had was the Old Testament to go by, we could see what Satan was up to here because Satan, just like the people, this is a satanic thing that's going on here. Okay, all God intended was for the house of Ahab to be cut off. He did not intend for the house of David to be cut off. See, this is, this is going beyond the word, which is the most common thing that we do with Scripture is we add to it and go beyond it. And this guy has gone way beyond what God has said. And all in zeal, all in the name of the Lord. Don't we see that today? People going beyond God's word, and, they, and it's out of zeal for God and zeal for His ways that we say something more than what God has said. It's what Eve started at the garden, where she said more. God said, you can't even touch that fruit, adding to what God has said, going beyond what God said. And we've been doing it ever since. Jehu's gone way beyond what God has said. And that's not God that encourages us to go beyond His word. God always encourages us to live within the boundaries and confines of His Word. It's Satan that wants us to go beyond, even what we think are good reasons. Jehoshaphat undoubtedly had his good reasons for allowing his son to marry into that family. Jehu had his good reasons for putting all these people to death. And Satan was behind it all, wanting to snuff out the line of David so that Jesus can't come. Now, we start to get into some application from that. But first, a corrective that we get from the New Testament. If we didn't have a New Testament, we would assume, just like Israel did, that because Solomon was David's successor, the Messiah would come through Solomon. But when you get to the New Testament, you find out that Joseph, who was not the father of Jesus, was of the line of Solomon. And Joseph, not the real father of Jesus, could himself not sit on the throne of David. And that's because of a curse that God pronounced on the last king of Israel, Jehoiachin. And God said, and he, in, the, in the genealogy of Matthew 1, Jehoiachin is called Jeconiah. And God said, no descendant of Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne. So if the line of Jesus comes through Solomon and through Jehoshaphat and through Joash and down through Jehoiachin, then God has just annulled an unannullable contract, covenant. God can't set aside the Davidic covenant. So if, in fact, the Davidic covenant said it goes through Solomon and through, then, then God just said no to his own covenant. Can't happen. But then you realize, even if Joseph could have sat on the throne, it wouldn't have helped Jesus because Jesus is, and Joseph are not related. Jesus' father is not Joseph. He could not sit on the throne because of Joseph. They were not related. It's through Mary that he can sit on the throne. 
And so when you look at Luke chapter 3, the line of David does not go through Solomon. It goes through Solomon's brother, Nathan. Bathsheba had four children. um, Solomon was not her only child. She had four. And one of those boys was named Nathan. And Nathan becomes the the great, 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 great grandfather of Mary. And it's through Mary's line, through the line of Nathan to David, that Jesus had claimed to the throne. So what we see here is it seems as that Jesus gave, I mean, God gave a little bit of a, a, um, uh, just a misdirection. Didn't lie, but he, he, he never said that it would be through Solomon, but, but he hasn't corrected the people's false assumptions here. All the while, God said it's not going to be Solomon. It's going to be Nathan. God knew what he was doing. Now, you see what Satan's prepared to do when Israel and Satan think it's going to be through Solomon. Kill them all. Kill them all. Merciless. There is no mercy in the devil. What if God had said it's going to be through Nathan, not Solomon? Then the focus wouldn't be on this. It'd be on Nathan's descendants. Because Satan is going to do whatever he can to keep Jesus from coming. Which gets to dedicating children to the Lord. And what we just did this morning. Satan's never changed his stripes. He hates Jesus. And he will do whatever it takes to keep Jesus from coming. From coming to the nation of Israel, from coming to this world, the last thing he did, and the last attempt that he made, was to kill all the two-year-old babies and younger in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' death. Again, he's trying to just extinguish the possibility of Jesus being on the earth because he knows it's a threat to his own kingdom. All started because of an impure, mixed-faith marriage, which is what gave the devil his opportunity. I could stand here this morning and read passage after passage from the New Testament that talks about purity of faith, simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus, about walking in the light with God, about knowing that we are a holy people, that we are to come out and be separate. Passage after passage. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, get rid of the old leaven that is among you. Chapter 6, you've been purchased with a price. You are no longer your own. I don't know that there's a book in the New Testament that I couldn't highlight this morning that talks about the, the importance, the imperative of being spiritually pure. And not allowing the influences of this world to captivate our hearts. Even the epistle James says friendship with the world is hostility toward God. You adulteresses, James says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts, James says. Over and over again. We are in a spiritual battle. And Satan doesn't show up with horns and pitchfork. He seduces us. Just seduces us. It's a gradual seduction. Just bringing us a little more, a little more into the world. And what's his ambition? To keep Jesus from coming into your home. 
He's more than happy to have every other ungodly, unholy influence in our home. But what he's after is not just getting the ungodly influence, but to cut off Jesus. That these children don't hear about Jesus. They don't see Jesus. He has never changed. If we had time, I would show you how this is, this is the root cause, the satanic agenda to keep Jesus from coming again is the root cause of anti-Semitism in the world today. Because Jesus said in Matthew 24, he would not come again until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 23, 37 to 39. He will not step foot on this earth a second time until Israel claims him as her king. Well, just like Satan thought Jesus was coming through the line of Solomon, and he did everything he could to kill him off. Now Satan knows he's coming, he will not come until Israel acknowledges him as king. So what's he been doing for the last 2,000 years? Trying to kill him off. It shouldn't surprise us. He would be right if he could do that. If Satan could, in fact, kill all the Jews, it would keep Jesus from coming again. The rapture can take place at any time, but to establish his kingdom on earth, Israel must receive him as her king. This is Revelation chapter 12. Satan's kicked out of heaven. He realizes that his time is short, and he focuses his attention on the woman who gave birth to the child. That's speaking of Israel. She flees into the wilderness for three and a half years, but God comes to her aid and preserves her. And he realizes that he can't snuff out Israel. And this is the very end of the tribulation. He turns his attention to kill everyone else who has placed their faith in Christ. He hates Jesus. He'll do everything he can to keep him from coming. And he will do everything he can to keep people from placing their faith in Christ. And it starts with these little compromises. Well-intentioned compromises. That could be easily justified. But it's putting rot into the hearts of our family, our children, our marriages... And it's because of ungodliness that we've allowed to characterize our homes instead of that pure and simple devotion to Jesus. So if there's a lesson in this message, our only hope is Jesus. And Satan's one ambition is to keep Christ from being made known in our homes, in our schools, in our nation. Shouldn't surprise us. But really, we can, we can moan and groan, and I certainly moan and groan a lot, about the status of our nation and what may or may not happen in an upcoming election. But it begins at home. Is there a pure and simple devotion to Jesus at home? And that's what our kids need. And that's the one thing that Satan is trying to keep from happening. I'll close us in prayer.
Father, we thank you for giving us um, the Holy Spirit and your word. And it is through these two witnesses that we know the truth and can walk in it and fellowship with you in the light. I pray that we would just cherish God, this gift of fellowship with you, and that we would let nothing come between us, God, and that we would be on guard, Lord, to not let the devil through impurity rob our children of the gift of seeing and hearing of Jesus. Purify our hearts and minds. We do, O oh God, seek to draw near to you and to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts that you might get all the glory and you might have the victory, God. We're not adequate for this battle. We thank you that you are. And greater, more powerful is the name which is above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ, than anything that Satan can throw at us. And we thank you, God, for that. Our confidence and our victory is truly in Jesus alone. In his name, amen.